We are continuing with our study of the great instruction, the gospel according to Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, that is often called the Sermon on the Mount. As we have seen, this is the instruction that Jesus gave to his initiates, and it has to do with creating the conditions whereby the grace of God can work in the heart of the disciple and make him as we read just a short while back, perfect even as our Father which is in heaven is perfect. So we have reached the section on prayer. We began last week, we discussed the first part of it about not being ostentatious about our praying or use it to show people how spiritual we are. But Jesus goes on from there with what we often call the Lord's Prayer. After this manner, therefore pray ye. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now this prayer... <coughs> has been repeated so many times, and especially in this form, as found in the King James Version, that um, it has taken on a kind of a quality of its own, which is perhaps somewhat different from what was present when Jesus first gave it out. It's almost used as a mantra by the Christian Church as a whole, and most scholars and people who have thought deeply about this matter do not think that this is what Jesus meant to do when he gave it out. After this manner means in this style or like this, not using exactly these words, please. It is not likely that Jesus intended this prayer to be used as simran by the disciples, but rather that he was indicating ways in which we could relate to God. Uh, each of the petitions in the prayer is an indicator of um, what we should be asking for and how, in what direction we should be facing, you might say. And it's a tremendously dense and very compressed kind of prayer too, which, which is almost a, a manual of spirituality in itself. Although it's, I have to say that this is one of the places where the King James Version kind of breaks down pretty badly. Um, there are a lot of errors in the traditional version of this prayer, and we will, we will look at them as we go along. Some of them are not the fault of the King James translators either, but some of them are. Right. Our Father, which art in heaven, first of all. Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, there is another version of this prayer, somewhat shorter. In the King James version, however, the, that version has been edited to bring it into conformity with this one. In the modern translations, the differences are much clearer. In Luke's version, he simply says, Father. 
Father, hallowed be thy name. So when we repeat our Father which art in heaven, if we think of the exoteric meaning of heaven as above the sky, or the way where where children who go to Sunday school usually think it is, where I always thought it was when I was a child in Sunday school, um, we are really badly missing the point here. Where is heaven? Jesus says very clearly in the Gospel of Luke that the kingdom of God is within you. And we know as initiates that that is true. So when we pray to our Father, which art in heaven, we are praying to the innermost self of ourself. As Master Kapal Singh says in a very important passage commenting on prayer in general, to regard that omnipotent power as something separate and apart from us and to appeal to him as to an outside benefactor is assuredly a sorrowful mistake which is made by us. For he is the very soul of our soul and is ever working within and without us and we, in fact, live and have our very being in him. The secret of success lies in direct prayer and appeal to the power within as these bear sure fruit and in abundance. So it's important that even though we may use these words, Heavenly Father, our Father which art in heaven, etc., that we have a very clear understanding of where heaven or the kingdom of God is. And remember that uh, Jesus had this understanding and so did the people to whom this formula was originally given. Hallowed be thy name. This is an absolutely tremendous verse. Okay, hallowed be thy name. We say it so often. In modern English, that phrase comes out as holy is thy name. Okay, what is meant by name? Here we, we, of course, this is one of the key points of all esoteric teaching, is the teaching centering around the name of God. And it certainly was in uh, the Judaism of this day, too. There was a tremendous school of thought built up around the mysticism of the name of God. And we know that the saints distinguish between two uses of the word name, the varanatmak and the dunatmak. Varanatmak refers to the name which can be spoken with the tongue outwardly, names such as are used in mantras, um, although there again they distinguish between the attributive, attributive names of God, names that people make up and apply to them, and to the basic names of God, which I will get back to in a minute. Uh, and then the dunatmak name is the, the true satnam itself, the expression of existence which comes forth from the Father and brings forth the universe. And in this sense, it is, of course, the same as the Word, which it is referred to elsewhere in the Bible. Also referred to as wisdom, as we have seen when we studied that passage in the book of Proverbs several months back. So, um, Jesus here is, is meaning both meanings. Okay, He is very well aware of both meanings. We should never think that he is ignorant of these things. He is very well aware of both meanings. And do not think that um, the Judaism, the Jewish mysticism of the day was not aware of these things. Scholarship is very deficient in, in knowing exactly who knew what at these times. And often people who are rationalistic and not esoterically inclined jump to conclusions that 
since they think a certain way, then uh, obviously these people also thought that way. The more deeply scholarship goes into these matters, the more this kind of thinking is exploded. So he was first of all referring to the Dunatma, the Varanatmak name, or Nam, the basic name of God which he probably did give out as part of his mantra, and which was uh, unquestionably a basic name of God in the Hebrew language, that is the famous tetragrammaton, or four-letter Hebrew word YHVH, which is pronounced various ways in English, but which according to Orthodox Judaism was and is never supposed to be pronounced at all, because it was a highly sacred name. And that name, around which a whole thing was centered in Judaism, derived its holiness from the fact that it was a directly connected to the sound current in the same way that all basic names of God which masters give out in their mantras are. Now how that name YHVH occasionally is pronounced as Yahweh, sometimes as Jehovah, there are other suppositions too. Uh, the connection of that with the Arabic word Hu, which was a definitely another basic name of God used in the Sufi mantras given out by Malana Rumi, the connection between them is discussed by Martin Buber in a very interesting book on Moses, which he says, possibly the name is in some degree only an extension of the word who, meaning he, as God is also called by other Arab tribes at times of religious revival, the one, the unnameable. The Darvish cry, Yahoo is interpreted to mean, O He, and in one of the most important poems of the Persian mystic, Jalaluddin Rumi, the following occurs. And this poem was often quoted by Master Kripal Singh, uh, and most of it is in the book, The Mystery of Death, by the way. One I seek, one I know, one I see, one I call. He is the first, he is the last, he is the outward, he is the inward. I know no other except Yahu, O He, and Yamanhu, O He who is. The original form of the cry may have been Yahuva, if we regard the Arabic pronoun Huva He as the original Semitic form of the pronoun He, which in Hebrew as well as in another Arabic form has become Hu, and so forth. And he goes into also the whole thought, what we call primitive, I think it would be more correct to say traditional, in which this connecting of the dunatmak with the varanatmak is um, deeply rooted in the traditional ways of people who live close to the, we might call, close to life without any protection. That is to say, um, either that sense of cosmic helplessness which we mentioned earlier in connection with the verse, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The true name of a person, like that of any other object, is far more than a mere denotative designation for men who think in categories of magic. It is the essence of the person, distilled from his real being, so that he is present in it once again. What is more, he is present in it in such a form that anybody who knows the true name and knows how to pronounce it in the correct way can gain control of him. The person himself is unapproachable, he offers resistance, but through the name he becomes approachable. When that happens, 
The essential thing in the last resort is that the speaker shall recognize this essential being in the name and direct his full attention upon it. Where that happens, where the magical work requires an aiming of the soul at the being meant, that is, the fuel is provided into which the lightning of a religious experience can fall, then the magical compulsion becomes the intimacy of prayer, the bundle of utilizable forces bearing a personal name becomes a vow, and a demagization of existence takes place. In other words, the traditional or primitive magical idea that by knowing someone's name you gain control of them and so forth is in reality a popularized degeneration of the esoteric truth that was known at one time, and that is the secret of the basic names of God, which when the soul is aimed at the bearer of those names, then it's true, just as he says, the lightning of a religious, intimate religious experience takes place. So, uh, these things are pretty universal and definitely, uh, all of this is implied both in the, in the tremendous veneration with which the name YHVH was held and also, uh, why it became holy in the first place because of its connection with the primeval name or the sound current. Other, other modern versions render this phrase, um, may thy name be held in honor, or may thy name be held holy, which is a, is a kind of a sweetness to it in that it implies that if we understand its value, then we will be better off. In other words, your name is holy, may it be held holy by those who will benefit from holding it holy. And if we do that, if we consider it as holy, treat it as such, and make full use of it, then we can indeed become something. And that is the prelude, the very first thing. In other words, first comes Simran. The remembering of the name of God is the prelude to everything else. Once that is done, then thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so many times we repeat these words over and over in church, sometimes at home, and they're so familiar to us, but what are we asking for here? When we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what does Jesus mean by heaven? We have seen that it is within us, ultimately, but what is he talking about? He is obviously talking about the true kingdom of God, or such kind. And in such kind, uh, there is no fall. Man, the universe, man nor angels have fallen in such kind. God is in control there, and what he wants is done. And there is no separation, no duality, no um, opposition to his will. So he is praying, we are praying, if we follow this, for that to happen on earth. And there are two ways, two things are meant here. And throughout, whenever we have these so-called eschatological passages, which refer to a future kingdom, there are two meanings, two levels of meaning involved. The first one is personal. Because if the kingdom doesn't come in us, in the ones praying, then how is it going to come anywhere? It has to start with wherever the one who is praying for it is at. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying, 
O Father, undo the fall, both in me and in the world. And uh, that is a big prayer. And there was a book written about 30, 40 years ago with the title, Thy Kingdom Come, But Not Now, which is probably, if we do think of this, we probably forget it or think of it in that way very soon thereafter because we're asking for a lot. We're saying that we mean it. Make us the way we were intended to be when we were first created on the level of soul. It's a big thing. It's not a small thing. A reversal of the present order. When, of course, if we're following the instructions in the rest of this sermon or instruction um, and if we are also initiated ourselves as the people were who were hearing this and if we also live up to what we are told do Simran and so forth and approach life with the in the manner prescribed here then perhaps we will be acting out these words and really begging for God's kingdom to come and for the fall to be undone in us also give us this day our daily bread very simple lines. The only thing in the whole prayer that has anything to do with material things. The only thing. I mentioned last week about attending prayer meetings many times when I was younger and how on and on the petitions went. Um, any church you can hear also. Material thing after material thing. A thing connected with this world is being prayed for always within the purview or the scope of the vision of the person praying. And this is there is no justification for this in the Lord's Prayer, not a bit. What do we pray when we pray for our daily bread? We are asking for only enough to get through this day, one day at a time. Later on in the sermon, Jesus talks about this very eloquently, in much more detail, and not very far away either, because he's introducing the subject in the prayer. But this is again in line with that sense of cosmic helplessness. The poor in spirit. Why are they blessed? Because they know that there is no security. There is no security and therefore on earth and therefore they look for security the only place where it can be found which is within. And they know that. And that is why they are both poor in spirit and also blessed. So when we pray for our daily bread, when we pray for this much, then we are putting ourselves into the position of depending not on any outside agency, but on that which is within ourselves for just enough to get by each day. In Luke, the, the verse reads, give us day by day our daily bread, which is a very sweet way to put it, I think, each day. Not more than that. If we try to pile up more than that, then we are not trusting. And that is not what is the best attitude for those who are interested in going all the way, who are interested in being as receptive as possible to what God wishes to give us. And this is the only thing of this type that we are supposed to ask for. That's very clear. There are a few prayers by other masters which Master Kripal Singh printed in his book on prayer, um, along this line, prayer by Kabir, prayer by Dhanabhagat, um, 
both of which ask for the bare minimum, like this, just enough. Just enough, not more than that. To concentrate on more than that, to ask God for things. The other day in the morning satsang, we read where Sanchi says in his comments on the Sukmani, that if we ask the Master for things that we want, then who are we worshipping? If we ask the Master for things that our mind wants, then who are we putting at the service of who? We are putting, making the Master a bond slave for our mind, and we are worshipping our mind. So it's an important thing. We are supposed to relate to the Master or to God in a trusting, submissive way. Okay, we have our, he has our hand in his, I should say, although we can certainly pull it out if we want. But he takes us by the hand, we hold his hand, and he leads us. And it is very important that we never forget that it is he who is leading and we who are being led, and he is leading us where he wants to lead us. And we may ask him for just enough to get by each day. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this is the central point of the prayer, I would say, the single most important of the clauses in terms of the way the whole thing works. Because this is the one that he comments on just two verses later. If ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Our forgiveness hinges on our ability to forgive. Why is this? Because of the law of karma. None of us deserves anything. That is, we deserve whatever we get, but we don't deserve anything beyond what we have earned. We don't deserve, in other words, forgiveness. And yet, without forgiveness, we are nowhere. God is willing to forgive us. But if we are not willing to forgive uh, in the same way, why should he then take away from us that which we have earned? It's like by not forgiving, in the same way when we criticize others, we take on ourselves their karma. That's the teaching. And we will get into, there's a big section on that in a little while too. Uh, when we criticize others, we take on their karma. And when we won't forgive others, it's like we can't lose our karma. It's the other side of the coin or the other, the reverse face of the same thing. So, if we forgive, and debts here in Luke it says sins, and it's very clear that uh, this is what we are praying about. Uh, debts is used is perfect from the karmic point of view because that, of course, is what they are from the karmic point of view. We often, masters often speak about our karmic debts. So uh, it's up to us. You know, if we forgive, we can. We have the right to demand vengeance, the right to demand an eye for an eye, as we have seen a little while back. That's that's. Karmically speaking, that is definitely in the order of things, but that is within the domain of the negative power. And if we uh, stick to that, then we are imitating him, are going to be held to account for everything that we do, and will not be eligible for divine forgiveness ourselves. So when William Blake considered that forgiveness of sins was the essence of Christianity, as I have often said, I think that he was absolutely right. And when he wrote Mutual Forgiveness for Each Vice, 
such are the gates of paradise. That is the, the teaching. Ultimately, the whole fallen universe will be forgiven and reconciled to God through the agency of the masters. That is their, the ultimate end of their work. And if we help them in that, the more we forgive, it's like the more easier it is for them to forgive. Just as our meditating helps us, helps them in their mission, so do, does our forgiveness of others help them in their mission. Our not non-criticism of others, and so forth. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This verse really is badly translated, and Master Kripal Singh uh, specifically on several occasions quarreled with this version of the prayer and said that it could not be what Jesus had said. He was not familiar with other translations except for the King James, but it happens to be absolutely true. Uh, the best modern versions, the Jerusalem Bible, which is one of the best, translates this, do not put us to the test, which is a vastly different thing and uh, very much in accord with the teachings of the Masters. God doesn't lead anybody into temptation. That's the point. So to pray to him not to lead us into temptation is uh, ridiculous. It is never God who leads us into temptation, but our mind or the evil one, because the second part of the phrase, deliver us from evil, should be rendered, and modern translations do render it, deliver us from the evil one. Very definitely personified. And that, of course, is Kao, who is who we are not imitating if we forgive our debtors. So debtors, I should have pointed out, meant to before, just as debts refers to karmic debts and um, can be translated as sins, so those people who are our debtors are not necessarily those who owe us money. That's not the point. That's a figurative use of the word debtors. It means those who sin against us and who owe us something karmically, and whom we have a claim on karmically. Later on in the Gospels, we'll get to it in due course, Jesus tells the parable of someone who had who owed an enormous amount of money, absolutely enormous, and a fantastic amount of money, incredible. It was uh, billions of dollars, equivalent of billions of dollars. You don't realize it because we're not familiar with the the denominations used, but that's what it was. And the person to whom he owed it forgave him. So he went out from the house and he met somebody who owed him a couple of pennies. And he grabbed him by the throat, held him up against the wall and demanded his money. And when he didn't have it, he turned him over to the to the policeman and had him sent off to debtor's prison for owing him his debt. When the man to whom uh, the man who had forgiven him the billion dollar debt heard about it, he was upset. And that is something like, you see, that's the meaning of that, of that story, that so much is owed by us to God and He's forgiven us. How much little bit of that is going to be owed to us by any individual? And that yet we just insist on it, hang on to it, you know, feed on it, stomp up and down on it, anything, to keep it alive and, uh, and think about it all the time, harp on it, what this wrong that was done to us, this thing that we must, and so forth and so on. So do not put us to the test, but deliver us from the evil one. The masters are very clear that we should never pray to be put to the test. Never pray. Why? Because we won't make it. That's why. If we're put to the test, we lose. We fail. 
And if we think we won't fail, then that's the worst failure of all. So we should avoid it like the plague. And if the Master wants to put us to the test despite our praying it to him every day, then that's his will and we will just have to hold on to his hand and go through and trust to him to pass the test, not to us. There's no other way to do it. I know of cases where people who are well known to me have prayed for this in one form or another. And there is something about asking for it. Even if the Master says, don't ever ask for that, still you have asked for it once it comes out. And they did, their prayer were answered and they didn't pass. And uh, they were very sorry. So it's a real heavy thing. And it's important for us never to think that we are spiritually anything, that we have any strength of any sort. We must remain poor in spirit. In the face of the universe, we are helpless. We have control over nothing. What we have is, we have is the love of our Father. And by holding on to His hand, He can help us do anything. But only as long as we are very clear about our own true status. Once we think that we are more than we are, then why should we then ask anyone to help us? So we don't, and then we don't get it. The last verse in the prayer, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. was never said by Jesus. This is thing some of you who were brought up in the Catholic tradition will realize that this is not present in the Catholic tradition, and so happens that the Catholic tradition is right. Uh, this was added early on by some monk or somebody who thought that this was the way prayers ought to end. And it was inserted into the Bible. And the version that was used, the texts that were used to translate the King James Version included it. The texts that were used to translate the early Catholic version did not. And uh, that text was more accurate. So that's not part of the gospel. It is not part of Jesus' words. It simply reflects the usage of the early church. Anyway, the prayer that he read then, that he did not read but gave out, in very simple modern English, Our Father in heaven, holy is thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not put us to the test, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. And that way there are seven, it's been counted, seven different petitions, all of which relate to the attitude or to the frame of mind, to the way in which we relate to the universe, which enables God to shower grace on us. It's the attitude that the masters have before they become masters, when they sit for meditation in the way that Sanji described in the passage just read out before this. Um, it's the way that the Gurumukhs have of relating to their master, the same attitude that Master Kripal wrote in that hymn that we sang at the beginning of the satsang is also reflected in this prayer. We are holding on to the master's hand and he is leading us through. And with his help, we can make it. We can not only make it, but become something. The purpose of our life can be fulfilled. And all of these things, the promises that are held up, as well as the demands which are made, both become possible. We can both receive the things that the promises promise and also live up to what the demands demand. 
both of which become in our power to do if we live in this way, in such a way that uh, we are open, wide open to God and he can shower grace on us. That phrase that the masters use, Sancha uses it a very great deal. It's also present in the Sukmani and many other places too. Showering grace. It's very, it's a desert image, you know, because showers don't come often in the desert. When they do come, it's like a matter of grace. It's not a thing that anyone takes for granted. No, grace is showered, and the masters use the image of the cup. If our cup is upright, then it will be filled up. When the showers fill us, come, they will fill us up. But if our cup is upside down, then it could rain for 40 days and 40 nights. It's like Noah's flood, and it still wouldn't be one bit of it get into the cup. So the whole point of this instruction, this Sermon on the Mount, and of this prayer, which may well be the key passage to the sermon, it's about midway through it, and it may well be uh, that which sums up and encapsulates the rest of it, um, is to live in such a way that our cup is right side up and we can get filled up. That when God showers grace on us, we will not be just bounced off of, but we will be filled up. Similar to the stories told when Master Sawan Singh was asked if he, why he didn't give more grace, he said that he went out every morning at three with his basket of grace. And everyone who was awake got grace. When he found people sleeping, there was no one to give it to. There was nothing there to receive it. And Sanchi said in this last trip, as somebody has reported, maybe more than one, when someone asked a question about grace, grace is given at three in the morning. So, we must not take for granted that which the masters give us. That's the central meaning of this prayer.